0: One of the ways that I know that I'm acclimating after seven years here is that I wanted the Cowboys to lose more than I wanted the Eagles to win. And last night, I was happy that the Packers lost, because why should they have an MVP-level quarterback and him two Super Bowl rings when we can't? So your discipleship is working. Thank you. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to First Peter. Our time together this morning will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's Word. If you do not have a copy here with you, you could just look underneath the seat in front of you or near you. There should be a Bible there. Please feel free to take that with you. We'd love for you to take that home and be able to read it and understand more about what it means to follow Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Consider that a gift from us to you today. First Peter chapter 1, if you're using the Bible in the seat, it should be somewhere around page 1014. We're going to begin reading to kind of hold the section together, especially since these sermons have been spread out a little bit, in verse 13, but we're going to focus on verses 22 through 25. Peter writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. Therefore, prepare your minds for action, and being sober-minded, "'Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, "'not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, "'like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. "'He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, "'but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you.'" who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith, put a box around that, and hope, put a box around that, are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another, put a box around love, earnestly from a pure heart, Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us as the Apostle Peter, like the Apostle Paul, admonishes us toward faith, hope, and love. We ask that you would give us ears to hear the truth of God revealed in your word. We pray that you would give us eyes to see the beauty of the gospel. Father, we pray for the miracle of new birth to take place for the person who might be here today who is not yet a Christian. We pray, Father, for the gift of encouragement as we study your word for all of the believers who are present, that they might be built up into a chosen race, a royal priesthood. We pray, Father, that you would help us to learn what it means to love one another as Christ has loved us at great cost to himself. And we ask all of this in the name of our God who has revealed himself to us as Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen. Suppose a special microphone were wired to pick up the sentences playing just at or below the awareness level of everyone's mental tape this morning as we entered the church. If we were eavesdropping, what would we have heard? Oh no, there's Dan. If he sees me, he'll ask why I haven't responded to any of the requests on Planning Center. I better move inside quickly and get seated. I wish my spouse weren't here, uh, away this morning. It's really uncomfortable coming to church without her. Well, I'll just sit at the back and leave as soon as the service is over. I sure hope the preaching's better this week than it's been the last few weeks. It's really gonna be a great day. No work that needs to be done. I like church and the football game is on at 3 p.m. this afternoon. That gives me time to go to lunch with friends and still get home for kickoff. I love being a Christian. I wonder if I should keep coming to this church. I really haven't made any friends, and the sermons don't do very much for me. Well, if I keep praying about it, I might have some clarity. Let's see how it goes today. Look at that happy young family. It really hurts when I realize that my kids are now grown, and they're mixed up in other things. I wish I could have just a few of the years back, but I can't start crying now. Come on, there comes one of the elders. If the people knew what I did last night, they wouldn't even talk to me, much less let me in here today. With tapes like these playing quietly in our minds as we gather, the chances are very slim that any real love will be demonstrated during the time we spend together because we're often far more focused on ourselves than we are any of the people who are around us. As Peter tells us about the miracle of rebirth and shifts his focus from how God individually saves people to the community, we see that was just as true in the first century as it is today, as he urges these persecuted Christians to love one another. It is so hopeful of a message, because the gospel that has the power to save us is, the apostle tells us, the ground for our mutual love for one another. Peter tells us that there is actually hope for a loving church in a world that is so confused about what it means to love because of the gospel. And as he does, he gives us three reasons to love one another, and he tells us three ways to love one another. Reason number one, look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another. There's reason number one. They've purified their souls by obeying the truth. Therefore, verse 22, they are to love one another. Peter grounds this command, this now fourth imperative in this section, to love one another on their conversion, having purified your souls. And how did they purify their souls? Verse 22, by their obedience to the truth of the gospel. Often as you're reading through the New Testament, you'll see that the gospel is referred to as the truth, Galatians 2, 5. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Galatians chapter 2, verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, Colossians chapter 1, verse 5. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. Peter says that the past action of conversion to the truth of the gospel has an ongoing consequence for them in their lives in the present, even though they're being slandered and misrepresented and mistreated and oppressed and ostracized and alienated. The difficulties that they face and the sins that others have committed against them And the hardships that they personally are experiencing and the pain that they really feel does not exempt them from loving one another, from doing spiritual good to others in the Christian community any more than it exempts you or me. Because isn't that how we often respond when we're wronged? As if we are no longer required to love because we have been wronged. And that response seems justified to us. You see, Peter knew that our default tendency is to turn inward rather than to turn towards others in love, especially when we're suffering, particularly when we're hurting, at moments when it's hard. So he summons a suffering church to the mainstream Christian life by calling them to love one another. And in so doing, he actually reveals to them what is the goal of their conversion. It is a genuine love for others. This is how they will know that you are my disciples, Jesus said, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for, why have you purified your souls by obedience to the truth, for sincere love? But it's not for a love for others in general, it is for fellow believers in particular, members of these churches, which is why he says, verse 22, brotherly love. Philadelphia. sometimes in some places when you're downtown in Philadelphia, it looks like anything except the city of brotherly love. And sometimes among some Christians in some churches, the church looks like anything except a community characterized by love. Peter knew firsthand that ugliness can occur among and by true believers. And it grieved him to see it among these Christians. He looked out and he saw that there was something seriously wrong with these churches. And he concluded what was wrong was a lack of love. Not that they needed to read another book. Read books. Not that they needed to have more information. By all means, learn. Learn. But that what was wrong is a lack of love among the believers. He saw something was wrong in how they were conducting themselves among one another, toward one another, and he concluded the missing element among these churches in Asia Minor was love for one another. Believers, Peter teaches us we are to be known not only for our endurance in exile or our sound doctrine so that we can dot all of the I's and cross all of the T's of the evangelical faith, but of an unwavering love for one another even when you suffer, especially when it's hard, precisely when it's difficult to love other people. Reason number one. Reason number two. Look at verse 23. We'll pick up the imperative. Love one another. Verse 23 Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. There's reason number two. They are to love one another because, verse 23, they have been born again. In verse 22, conversion is described as them purifying their lives by obedience to the truth of the gospel. They are to do something in response to the truth, purify their lives in obedience to it. Now in verse 23, conversion is described as God causing them to be born again. In verse 22, the command of love was grounded in their obedience to the gospel, but now in verse 23, the command of love is grounded in God's saving actions that are loving. God granted them new life, so, they are to throw off old life patterns and they are to put on and live new life patterns. Peter's reason is unbelievably simple. They are to love one another because God has loved them. John says it like this I want everybody to just turn to the right, flip with me to 1 John chapter 4. John, the apostle, in his letter, writes this in chapter four, verse seven. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now drop to verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother. He is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Fellow members of this church, do you love one another? Enough to pray for one another. Enough to serve one another. Enough to disagree with one another. Enough to forbear with one another. Enough to give up your rights for one another. Enough to be inconvenienced by one another. Enough to actually forgive one another so that you might approach the Lord's table with one another. Peter is not telling us, he's not commanding us to tolerate one another in the body of Christ. He is not saying, learn how to put up with one another in the body of Christ, or endure with one another in the body of Christ, or coexist with one another in the body of Christ. That's the world's message. Just learn how to live amicably with other people. That's not the Christian gospel. The apostle is commanding these Christians us, fellow members of the church, to love one another. And love makes us vulnerable. It is hard to love because it opens us up to pain. But the only way to protect ourselves from that pain is not to love at all. In his book, The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis writes, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung, possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully, round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable irredeemable, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Perhaps you're here today and you find it hard to hear Peter's command, love one another, because you know that you've hurt someone so deeply you can't even imagine being forgiven to be loved. Peter knew what you felt like. Unforgivable. Unlovable. But by the sea of Tiberias, he was forgiven by the very person that he had sinned so grievously against Jesus. And now, forgiven, restored to a meaningful place of service, and loved, he confidently calls these Christians and all of us to love because he knows that there is no sin that you can commit that can send you out of the reach of the love of God. Friends, it is possible to be forgiven of, restored from Loved after the most heinous, Christ-diminishing, family-destroying, community-disrupting sins. The apostle Paul, a legalist, a murderer, a blasphemer, said it like this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. God saved Paul, God saved Peter, God will save each and every one of you if you repent of your sins and place your trust in Jesus Christ, the mighty friend of sinners. It is impossible for you to so sin yourself out of the grace of God that his grace cannot reach you. What prevents you from coming to him today? Pride? Cast it off. Is it fear of what others think? Do not believe it. Everyone in this room would love to know that you love God. Is it sin? Scripture assures you that he will forgive it. Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus loves to forgive sinners. If you're here and you have any questions about what it means to come to Jesus with your sins, not some of them, all of your sins, and just pour them onto Jesus, And place all of your trust in him. Please find me after the service. I would love to pray with you and open the Bible with you and tell you more about Jesus. But perhaps you're here today and you find it hard to hear Peter's command to love one another because you cannot even fathom loving someone who has been so unlovely towards you. Friends, Jesus knew what you feel like. Scorned by his family. Abandoned by his friends. Betrayed by his disciples failed by his government, mocked by his countrymen. And yet from the instrument of his torture, Jesus cried out and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And then on the evening of his resurrection, the day he rose from the dead, after those people abandoned him, betrayed him, slayed him, mocked him, the very first thing he says to his disciples is, peace be with you. Before telling them, if you forgive the sins of any, they will be forgiven them. Now, I want you to try to imagine that for a moment. It is, in my opinion, one of the most astonishing teachings in the gospel. We have absolutely no record of Jesus chastising them or treating them as their sins deserve or making sure that they've actually done enough to be forgiven by him, without so much as even mentioning their sin against him, Jesus forgives them. And then empowers them to go out into the world with a message of forgiveness. Can you then fail to love by withholding forgiveness from another person? Who are you withholding forgiveness from today? Unforgiveness... Is an acid that will destroy its own container. It will ruin your life. It will destroy everything about you. It will pull away everything that you love. And it will kill people around you, if not literally, spiritually. Love covers a multitude of sins. That doesn't mean that love does not see sin to be sin. Love learns how to cover those sins with the way that our sins have been covered. The gospel. Struggling with unforgiveness? The gospel is what you need. New birth, Peter tells us, is the reason believers are to love one another. Because believers have been born again, made alive by means of, verse 23, the imperishable seed of the living and abiding word of God, the invincible, incorruptible seed by which we are born again is the gospel. It never loses relevance. It is imperishable. From age to age, it is relevant for every person, from country to country, for in every life situation. No matter what you have uniquely faced, your circumstances are different than mine, that's fine. Same gospel I need, same gospel you need. It never loses relevance. The living word produces life, verse 22, that is abiding life, a life that will never cease. It is a living word that produces life that lives forever, which is why this is such a great teaching. It is such a hopeful message. Peter comes, and he does for these believers what Jesus did for him. Instead of coming and saying, you fools, look how you're acting, ignorant, stupid people that you are, He says, the gospel, the gospel of love is what you need. On the day when I was unlovable and unlovely and deserved no love in my life, Jesus forgave me at great cost to himself and did not treat me as my sins deserve. And now I come to you and encourage you to love one another. Reason number one, reason number two, reason number three, verse 24, Four, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fail, falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Careful readers, notice the word for at the beginning of verse 24, which typically signifies cause, not reason. But because it is difficult to see how the Old Testament citation from Isaiah 40, verses six through eight grounds what preceded, it makes better sense to see it as a restatement of the reason given in verse 23, which I believe makes it another reason. The third reason to love then is that the word of God endures forever. And Peter restates and reinforces that reason with the quotation from Isaiah 40, where comfort is proclaimed to Israel because God will once again work and restore them from their exile in Babylon. The good news for Israel in Isaiah 40 and these elect exiles in 1 Peter 1. And for all of you who are here today, according to Peter, is that God always fulfills his promises. And the nations of the world that seem so strong and mighty and powerful cannot resist his promised word to deliver his people from exile. Such nations, Peter tells us, the prophet tells us, are like grass and the flower of grass which perish when the winds of the Lord's providence blow upon them. Grass and flowers are beautiful in the springtime. But now in winter, you would hardly ever know that they were here. By quoting Isaiah 40, Peter is reminding these exiles that the persecutors of their day who seem invincible are not. And the glory that they have is short-lived. But their love for one another is of eternal significance. So he says, verse 25, the word of the Lord remains forever. Isaiah supports Peter's reason in verse 23 by helping us see that the imperishable, living and abiding word of God has present relevance for how these believers conduct themselves in their exile. And Peter tells us, verse 25, that that relevant word is, is the good news that was preached to you. The word of the Lord in Isaiah, which represents the promise that God will restore his people from exile and fulfill all of his covenant promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, is ultimately fulfilled in the gospel of God's love displayed in the person of Christ that is now being proclaimed to all of the nations in these churches throughout Asia Minor in particular. The new exodus of how God delivers his people. The return from exile as God takes them out of darkness and brings them to light. The fulfillment of all of the covenant promises, the command to love one another becomes reality through the gospel. The good news for Zion and for Jerusalem is that God will come and fulfill the promises to Israel, and he has. The promises in Isaiah are fulfilled in the preaching of the gospel. The command from Peter is motivated by the gospel. It is the gospel from the the abiding word of the Lord that gives them hope of deliverance. It is the gospel from the abiding word of the Lord that has caused them to be born again. It is the gospel from the abiding word of the Lord that gives them hope of heaven. And it is the gospel from the abiding word of the Lord that motivates their love for one another. Do you feel like you lack motivation in loving other people? Then you need to look afresh at the gospel feel like it's hard to do hard things in love you need to look afresh to the gospel you feel like it's difficult to love difficult people you need to remind yourself of the gospel and in particular you probably need to remind yourself that you are difficult and you are hard to love and you seem irredeemable and lost beyond all hope and yet god has loved you and that is how we learn to love one another Friends, we will only love our enemies and love those who are unworthy of love and love those who are hard to love when we're motivated by the gospel. Otherwise, you'll never love them. You will continue to find reasons to not call or not write or not visit or not talk or avoid or ignore. Do you find yourselves, members of this church, struggling to love one another? Consider the gospel. The gospel teaches us about the love of God for sinners like you and like me and like those that you're struggling to love. The gospel, the good news is the message of Christ's death for unlovable people. The message of Christ's resurrection for unlovable people. For those people, Jesus Christ came and he lived and he died and he rose again so that they might know the love of God. Not that they would love him in a way that he found conducive in this life, but that they might know the love of God. Are you living with other people? Not so that they might live with you in a way that you find conducive, but so that they might know the love of God displayed in the person of Christ, even if they never love you in a meaningful way this side of eternity. How much better would it be to share all of eternity together and having learned through that great love to lay aside all of the things that we mount against one another in this life. The gospel is the ground for our mutual love for one another, especially for fellow believers. Yes, by all means, love all of humanity. You must, and the way that we love them is by bringing them the gospel. But the way that we display that the gospel has taken root in our hearts and members of this church in this church is by allowing the gospel to motivate our love for one another. How will the world believe the message that we preach? It is an unbelievable message. Believe in a resurrected dead man who's alive and will come back. He'll break open the clouds one day and he'll redeem everybody. If we do not live like we're changed by it. Of course it sounds unbelievable. That sounds fantastic, They must see the gospel. This is how they will know that you're my disciples. By your love for one another. Those are the three reasons to love. But how? How are we to love one another? Peter knew that you and I, that these believers would need help, so he gave us three ways to love, and they are all found in verse 22, the anchor of the whole passage. Way number one, sincere love. Look again at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere love, love one another. A sincere love is a genuine love, it is an honest love. It is a love that is made evident not only in public gatherings, but in private prayer, behind closed doors, when others are not around. Brothers and sisters, Is your love for one another genuine? Again, the message of the world is to coexist. The message of the church is to love one another. With the words of your mouth and the thoughts of your hearts manifest that you have a sincere love, a genuine, heartfelt love for the brethren of this church. Love that is not only showcased in public, Let's be honest. If we're honest with ourselves, some of us know how to live around people on Sunday mornings that we do not love. Let it not be so among you. And if that's you, repent. That is not love. And it might not find you out this side of eternity, but it will find you out. Let love be genuine among you, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Let love be heartfelt. Let love be sincere. A sincere love is a genuine, honest love. That is what the world is looking for. Sincere love, way number two, brotherly love. Look in verse 22 again. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a brotherly love, love one another. Brotherly love is familial love. And the hard part of a familial love is that it requires us to love and gather and serve and care for and forgive others, even when, sometimes especially when, they've wronged us precisely because they're our family. A healthy family learns how to let love cover a multitude of sins because life together is far more important than being right, than being served, than being made known that your way was the accurate way, than individual preference. Do you feel a need to litigate everyone's offenses against you? That is not brotherly or familial love. If you need to prosecute every offense against you, Making sure that everyone knows, that was wrong, that offended me, that bothered me, you shouldn't do that. Parents, if that's how you raise the kids in the home, that's not love. Brothers and sisters, fellow members of this church, members of this community, if you need to litigate everyone's offenses, then you probably have not considered the magnitude of forgiveness that has been extended to you in Christ. Can you even begin to imagine what it would be like if Jesus litigated all of the offenses against you? Don't even think about the future ones. Just think of everything up to this moment. How awful that would be. How miserable your life would be. And yet he has not treated us like that. That is not the same. I want to be really clear. Learning how to have a familial love is not the same as allowing someone to abuse you or oppress you or manipulate you or coerce you. That is not love. That is always wrong. It is never right. And we want to help you. Perhaps you've never told anybody else that that's happening to you. We would love for you to come and to find one of us, find one of our elders. If you're a woman, please feel free to speak to one of our deaconesses. If you don't know who our deaconesses are, you can ask somebody who are one of the deaconesses of the church. We would love to help you. If someone is manipulating you, coercing you, abusing you, oppressing you, that is not love, no matter how much they say it is. We want to help you. Sincere love, brotherly love. Way number three, earnest love. Look in verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly. The earnest lover seeks to outdo others in showing love. Earnestly, they fervently display love and affection regardless of how much love and affection is reciprocated. Brothers and sisters, it is a poor lover indeed who waits for love to be initiated or reciprocated to actually love someone. On Wednesday nights, we're studying spiritual gifts. We're in chapter 14. There's a reason in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, you wouldn't know which chapter 14, I guess there's a lot of chapter 14s in the Bible. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and right right before chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians is chapter 13, the famous chapter on love. Why does Paul situate that chapter there between chapter 12 on spiritual gifts and chapter 14 on spiritual gifts? Because he wants to see that the primary indicator of spiritual maturity in someone's life is not their giftedness. It's not how they even get to use their giftedness. It's not if they get to use their giftedness in a way that they find to be meaningful. It's do they love other people? Are they living their lives in such a way that they are loving others with what they have received? And if they are not, irrespective of how gifted they are or if they're getting to use their gifts in meaningful ways or other people recognize their gifts, if they're not loving other people, then they're not mature and they don't understand their giftedness and they're probably not gifted in the way that they think they are. That's the whole point for the Apostle Paul. That is the same point for the Apostle Peter here. That love is the primary indicator of spiritual maturity. Not how long your quiet time is in the morning. Not how many times you read through the New Testament in a year. Not how many of our hymns you've already memorized by heart. But love for one another. Brothers and sisters, are you seeking to serve one another in love? Whether or not it is reciprocated by other people here. Or would your actions, your words, the way that you live in your homes or in this church indicate that actually all of the things you do, and some of you know that you are this person, are actually calculated to provoke somebody to love you back. Now, on the one hand, I want to say, I want to tell you what you probably don't believe. That's you. I love you. And you're doing that because you think people don't love you. You think nobody notices me and nobody loves me, so I'm going to do these things in hopes that people will actually love me. I love you. If no one's told you that, I love you. And there are people here who would love to love you, but that's not love. That's not how you manifest that you've been changed by love. We love because He's loved us, not to merit love. We love out of the overflow of the love that has been displayed for us, not because we want to be recipients of love that has not been shown to us. And if we feel that it has not been demonstrated in the way that we prefer, then perhaps that we don't understand what we actually need, anyways because most of the times, the ways that we most desperately need to be loved are not the ways that we're conscious of at all altogether. All of this, the apostle Paul tells us, as people earnestly seek to outdo one another in love should be motivated and done from, verse 22, a pure heart. Once again, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, not for gain or attention or promotion or advancement or pleasure, but from a pure heart that has been made holy. And this, the reason we're reading the passage together, is what it means to be holy earlier in the passage. Be holy as I am holy. Love one another. One of the things that keeps us from loving is this fear that we will pay the price of love, that we will lose out on all of the bright things that the world has to offer us if we endure wrong meekly, or if we renounce boasting and calling attention to ourselves, or if we spend all of our time and energy supplying the needs of others without fretting for our own needs and fighting for our attention that we so desperately want. If we risk making necessary reproofs that are surely at times to be interpreted by others as something other than loving if we receive correction with animosity and defensiveness, if we let love cover a multitude of sins and we try to put away grievances, thinking the best of other people in the body of Christ, that they probably didn't mean to do that. We rejoice when others prosper. We bless those who curse us. The reason we don't do that is because we fear, we fear that we are gonna miss out on something that the cost will be too great, the price will be too high, that we'll miss out on some cherished glory that someone else will know more about than us, and that we'll never really know what it meant to be fully human and live our life to the fullest, which is why I think he quotes Isaiah, because all of that is like grass. It's here today, and it's gone tomorrow. It burns up. It's like chaff. You throw it into the air. It's gone. You will spend your whole life on the hamster wheel trying to acquire all of those things and it will never satisfy and for those in this room who are here today and honest about that you know that to be true you've worked so hard to be loved and you've done so much to be loved you've given you've served and you've used words and done things and it never satisfies and you still don't feel loved do you want to know the love of god come to Jesus Christ. That is the love of God displayed. Everybody in this life might fail you, every single person. And every person you ever meet might eventually say, I hate you. But here's the promise of the gospel. Jesus Christ will never fail you. And if you turn to him in repentance, he will never say, I hate you. He will always say, I love you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I will be with you always to the end of the age, in the darkest moments of your life, when you're on your deathbed, and in those final seconds when no one else is around and you couldn't hear them if they were, I'm with you. Four final applications. Love defines how we act when facing conflict. Love defines how we act when facing conflict. And if you don't understand what that means, what I'm referring to in all of these applications is love as it's defined in the gospel. What did Jesus do when he was facing conflict? He opened not his mouth. So if you're unclear, go read the life of Christ in one of the gospels. John is really excellent for this. Matthew is really great for this, but they're all biblical, read them. And look in particular how Jesus is responding. When he's reviled, he opened not his mouth. When he was mistreated, he didn't mistreat other people in return. When they were railing him and saying untrue things, he didn't seek to correct everybody and make sure that the record was straight. Here's what really happened. Love defines how we act when facing conflict. Does it define how you act in the ways that you face conflict? Or would people say, and perhaps you might need to ask somebody who's honest with you, does love characterize the way that I act when I'm facing conflict? And be prepared for an answer that you don't want to receive. Second, love does not seek revenge for wrongs suffered. Love does not seek revenge for wrongs suffered. Again, we point back to the life of Christ. It would have been really great on the night that he was raised for him to go in there and upbraid the disciples and make sure they knew how much they had done wrong. And yet Jesus goes in there and he says, peace be with you. And you know, I believe the reason John recorded that twice in John 20, 19 through 23, is because he thought that the disciples would not get it. He doesn't just say it once in verse 19, he says it again in verse 21. He says, Peace be with you. Because you can imagine they're thinking, I cannot believe he's here. We all thought he was dead and we abandoned him. And now what? But Jesus comes and he says, Peace be with you. Love does not keep a record of wrongs, and it does not seek revenge when wrongs suffered. And it does not only seek them, it doesn't play it back in the mental tape. And some of you who would never do something towards somebody else know what it's like to run back the tape and think like, I should have said and what I wish I would have done. That also is sin and wrong. It's not good to not do something, but in the mental tape, play it back and be like, I really wish that I would have been like, you know what, buddy? That's not love. Love does not seek revenge. Third, Love overcomes evil through prayer, forbearance, and kindness. My former pastor, some of you have heard me say this many times, it's one of the most important things I've ever heard, would tell us when people brought conflict, or if we had conflict, have you prayed for that person for 30 days? Do you want to overcome wrong done to you? Pray. Pray. Pray for the person, pray for their blessing, pray that God would give them favor. Even though they've wronged you, ask God to to pour out his mercies on them richly. Ask him to build them up in a holy face. If they're not converted, save them. If they have children, that they'd be converted, that they wouldn't rebel, that they'd have blessing at work, that their employer would recognize them, that they would be richly satisfied in this life. Ask God to, to bless them. It is really hard to have evil in your heart and hate somebody when you're praying for them. And then you overcome the evil that you feel and then ask, God, give me an opportunity to speak to this person or perhaps provoke them to see that what they did actually was wrong and that they might come and speak to me. And I cannot tell you how many times in my life that that very thing has happened, that in the midst of praying that, that the very person I need to speak with comes and says, you know what? The other day when I did that, please forgive me. Or how many times my heart has softened and I just realized, you know what? That thing that I was like, it is Everest in my life. It must, you know, it wasn't that bad. I mean, I'm alive. It's okay. Through forbearance. Forbearance is not just grinning and bearing it, but it is thinking the best of other people and kindness. Think of what Jesus did. When unkindness was shown to him, he showed Kindness. We see that's most chiefly displayed on the cross when the very people railing them, and you have to look at all of the Gospels to see this. One of the people on his left and right was making fun of him earlier in one of the other Gospels, and yet by the end of Luke's Gospel, he's saying, remember me when you enter paradise, and Jesus doesn't say, you remember what you said a few minutes ago? You can deal with yourself, buddy. He says, you will be with me today. You. He did not show unkindness. Fourth. Love denies itself for the good of others. It gives up its own rights, its own privileges, what it's entitled to because what matters is serving others. Never in the Bible, husbands to wives, parents to children, members to other members, pastors to members, you know, deacons to pastors, pastors to deacons, anywhere do we see that what people need to do is that they need to assert themselves and get their rights. Everybody's called to lay down their rights and serve other people. That is the manifestation of maturity and love, laying down rights, laying down what's entitled to serve other people. Absolutely every relationship is like that. That's what it means, denying the self, dying to self, giving up the self, because the one thing that we don't want to give up is ourself. And that is why the continual journey of the Christian life is learning to deny. The power to overcome in these moments And the power to overcome the fear of missing out is the gospel by which we who have been born again through the word of God will endure forever. Love for God and love for one another helps you when you're dealing with hidden hatred against a fellow member of this church. Or when you're suspicious of another brother or sister in Christ and you're wondering, what's really going on here? Or when you're frustrated by how others are responding to world events and to think, how could they even be Christian? Or when you personally are hiding sin and actually prohibiting your ability to love others because you're not confessing it. Because rather than being honest and doing the loving thing and speaking truthfully, you cover it up. Friends, just think what would happen if we who gathered here today deliberately chose to play a tape such as, I know that when I walk through one of these red doors, there will be many people in the congregation who are burdened and hurting. To whom can I seek out and speak with words of love and concern? Our assembly, this church, would begin to experience the reality of the love of God in Christ, and we would be blessed. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to love. And we thank you that in the greatest act of love the world has ever known, your son, our Lord Jesus Christ, chose to love us when we were hard to love, difficult to love, unlovable, unlovely. And in the midst of that act, he did something for us we could never do for ourselves. He died in our place. He suffered when we should suffer He was pierced for our transgressions. And because of that act of love, we now have not only forgiveness of sins, but hope of heaven. God, I pray for my fellow brothers and sisters who are here today that you would help them, help me help all of us in all of our relationships, married, single, rich, poor, black, white, other, all of us to learn how to love one another. And we pray that the love of Christ would be so manifested among ourselves that those who come into this assembly could not help but hear the gospel and see the gospel and be compelled by the gospel to repent and trust in the Savior. And that that gospel, that love would pour out into this community, that it would flood the streets of Westchester so that they see the beauty of the gospel on display as they hear the astonishing mercy of the gospel in Christ crucified. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.